You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. In the time before Christ, the Jews went through a time of exile. While in exile, they would build temples scattered away from their homeland. During that time, a city named Ephesus was created by the Greeks and taken by the Romans. Roman rulers would connect the world with Rhodes. Paul was able to capitalize on both. Scattered Jewish temples connected by the Roman Empire Rhodes which led Paul to Ephesus, where he pastored for a while, left and then wrote them the letter, titled Ephesians. The lie is that things will always be the way they are. Broken people, broken churches. The truth is that you can become a new man with a new heart and a new mind. The people who follow Christ can be one body, one church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father to all. Ephesians. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. Oh, we're a small group today, so we got that means we have to do more work. Good morning. How are we doing? Oh, I'm good in Jesus too. If you're visiting today, we really want you to know that we work really hard at Redemption City Church to be really known for things that propel us and prepare us to be all that God has called us to be. And one of the ways that we seek to aim to do that, to really be embodied by something, is to do that through our eight marks, right? We talked about that. We talked about that throughout our DNA series. And another way we do that is through our mission statement. And so we've been kind of the last couple of weeks looking at our mission statement and kind of rallying around, reminding ourselves, why do we exist and what are we doing? And so we're going to look at that right now. Here's our mission statement. Redemption City Church exists to glorify God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship, service, covenant family, and multiplication right? So we want to be resolved to risk our comfort so that we might reach our city with a message that can release freedom in Jesus in order that many would experience a redeemed life in Christ. So we talked about this last week, right? So these four R's are the literal cornerstone of what we want to be known for. This is the hope for us as the church that we want to be driving into our community and first growing as a covenant family. And we want to be releasing things at all times in the name of Jesus. We want to be risking things in our lives and with our families wisely for the kingdom. And then we want to be reaching out to people in different ways with a gospel message. And of course, we want to be inviting Christ into everything we do for redemption. And so um, as we continue to walk forward in this mission statement, I'm going to ask you that same question we talked about last week. And here it is. Are you faithfully colliding your story, your time, your resources alongside this mission statement of our church? And so if you're wondering, how do I actually get in the game to do these things? Here are the four necessary ways that you can get in the game. They're the same ones like last week. So if you were here and you're like, we wrote this already write. I want you to write it again. So here they are. Um, Here's the four necessary ways. By sowing seeds of membership and discipleship. Everybody say membership. Membership. 
and discipleship. Okay, so we want, you want to be sowing seeds in this way. One of the ways you can risk your comfort is to take a step of faith in making Redemption City Church your home. There are many reasons why you want to be in a covenant relationship um, with a community, and we've talked about that um, in our DNA series. I would invite you to go back and listen. And then you want to be risking your comfort in discipleship. Who are you walking with? Who are you walking with? Who are you expressing Christ to? And then who is discipling you? Here's another way you can get in the game. Number two, by sowing seeds of regular offering and tithing. So you, you want to be risking your finances, recognizing that it belongs to the God of the universe. And I have a testimony right now um, to share with you guys. And so as of today, because of your guys' faith and grace, we have raised our entire $5,000 for our right now goal. So I just want to clap it up. And so what that is on the back of your roadmap, what that allows us to do is it allows us to pay off this big TV so that we can, we're able to have this for our church. It allows us to have all the money we need for our legal affairs as we continue to establish ourselves as a church and setting up our 501c3 and all of your tax write-offs. And then of course it gives us money to sow into the future with our technology department. And so we are really, really excited about that. Here's another way you can get in the game with our mission statement by sowing seeds of regular serving and glad participation, right? So uh, serving in our church, whether it's once a week, I mean, once a month or four times a month, are you serving? Do you have a role in the body of Christ? If you don't, you should talk to Caitlin about that. Say, Caitlin, she's our, she's over our connections ministry and, and say, Caitlin, I want to get in the game through serving and she'd be happy to open those doors for you. And then finally, we want to be risking our comfort by sowing seeds of regular prayer and fasting, right? And so um, when we engage in prayer, we get the, the really cool opportunity to talk to the God of the universe and to then listen. That's the key part, guys. And then to listen to what he has to say. And so we want to be marked by those things, prayer and fasting. Now, um, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be opening them today to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to continue to march forward in our Ephesians series titled Our Story, Moving Into God's story. And I want to remind you that it's all about discovering who we are as Christians in light of Christ. And so last week, if you weren't here in part eight, it was titled Faith, Love, Prayer, and a Praise-Filled Remembrance. And it was really all about the manifestation of how those seven identifiable blessings of the triune God work out in our lives. And then we kind of opened up Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we kind of broke them up into three segments. We looked at gratitude being expressed by Paul. Then we looked at intercession and what that means, a type of prayer. And then we looked at praise. And then we saw how all of those things collided. And then we learned why Paul was in such a mood to celebrate the church of Ephesus. And it was two reasons. There was their faith faith in God, something he was noticing, and then their love for other believers. And so we learned what does that mean for our lives? And then finally, we discovered what can we do to better navigate moments of difficulty that arise in our lives. And so that brings us today to part nine titled From Death to Life by Grace Through Faith. Um, and this is going to be all about understanding what is the true state of our spiritual condition. What does Ephesians reveal is the state of every one of our spiritual condition without Christ. And then we're going to step into the reality. This is really important. You're going to hear this a lot today. And we're going to be now marching this language for the rest of the series. What does it mean for us to be dead to rights? What does it mean for us to be dead to rights? And then finally, we're going to um, really look at trans transgressions and sins and how that affects our lives. And then we have hope 
for an answer from God in that. So our aim as we get ready to do this is to remember this, no matter who you are, no matter how much you've spent time in the book of the Bible or Ephesians specifically, or if this is your very first time opening up Ephesians, we want every single person to have an encounter with God in Ephesians like they've never had before. So that's our hope. Let's pray. Good, good Father, we want to start off by acknowledging that we are completely dead to rights. We're so dead to rights. You owe us nothing, but it is we who owe you absolutely everything, Lord. And through Ephesians thus far, we have been leaning into just how much you have indeed provided for us as sons and daughters of your kingdom. Lord, you've redeemed us through your blood. You've forgiven us of our sins. You've lavished upon us riches of your blessings. You've made known to us the mystery of your will. Therefore, because of your amazing grace, we have the opportunity by faith to see and experience and value Jesus as supremely valuable in our lives. Therefore, may you use today's sermon to help us move the needle into being marked by more and more and more redeemed freedom in such a way that our lives would permeate with what scripture would say is holy for our lives. We so desire to learn and grow today. Help us learn and grow. It's because of your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So here's the thing. We all tend to bend towards an inflated view of ourselves, and none of us are exempt from that, right? We all tend to have a type of inflated view from the reality of who we are and who we think we, who we believe ourselves to be. And whether it's conscious or subconscious, we compare ourselves to people all the time. And if you really learn the psychology of how we do this, we tend to compare ourselves to people who we believe are not as good as us or dirtier than us to help us feel better about ourselves. And in fact, it's really hard for many people to truly step into the reality of what God's wrath really means in the deep waters of how we are such in need of a savior. It's one of the biggest things that we struggle with in a nominal society is I don't really feel like I need a savior and I don't interact with God's wrath. This is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for those who are far from God. Okay. It's one of the biggest ones, namely I'm a good person. It is 100% the biggest thing that stumbles people from walking with the Lord, thinking that they are a good person. We talked about that in our very first DNA sermon, marked by the gospel. That was the rationale lie, number one. And what I laid out was there's really only four things that stop people from taking their step with Christ. And that was one of the big ones, believing they are just fine. But here was the gospel truth we talked about way back on June 9th. And it was this, outside of Jesus, we are all an absolute disaster. Without Jesus, we are all an absolute disaster. But the worst part about it, the Bible tells us that we've become numb to this reality. Did you know that? The Bible says we have become numb to the reality that we are an absolute disaster. We're going to look at Psalms chapter 36, verses 1 through 2, to kind of explore exactly what I'm talking about. So here we go. Psalms 36, 1 through 2. Transgression hmm, speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. See, what, what the psalmist is saying is there's so much of a flattering going on that he can't even see that he needs to hate this part or, or, or her part of the sin. So can't you see, because we often lack the proper reference of a fear of God, the Psalms is saying it, it makes it unable to see our sin. And because we so often imagine that we are actually better than we are or doing better than we are, that also gets in the way of being able to see our sin for what it is. 
Now, however, my aim is for us to walk away supremely encouraged today, but the first thing we have to step into is that we are dead to rights and that without Christ, we are absolutely nothing. And so we're going to jump right in the text. And as we do that, I want to kind of break this text of uh, verses one through 10 faithfully into two appropriate segments. And so let's, let's look at that. Now, the first segment is uh, segment one, verses one through three are a type of spiritual diagnosis of the universal condition of all people. Okay. The prognosis prognosis is spiritual death eternal death looms over us. Okay. So the first three verses is Paul revealing a diagnosis. This is, we're going to get diagnosed by the word of God. And this, this diagnosis is going to be for all people. We're going to see that now in segment two, which is going to take us from verse four through 10, we're going to see a spiritual prescription laid out by Paul that remedies this fatal condition. So there's hope coming today. So the prognosis after you have this remedy that we're going to look at between verses four and 10 is what spiritual life, eternal life awaits. Look at that divide folks in segment one, we're left in death. We're left in, in, in a bad condition, but something's going to be revealed in the second segment that says, wait a minute, this can be reversed and and life and eternal life can be awaiting us. And so let's look at that first segment faithfully right now at our spiritual condition. Here we go. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. This is the word of the Lord. You guys read with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived carrying out the desires of the body like the rest of mankind. Now, what I want to point you to right now on the screen is the words that I bolded and underlined it on the verse. What, what are they? You, we, and the rest of mankind, right? So the you, okay, here we go. Lean into this right here. The you, Paul is speaking directly about are the Gentiles in Ephesus. Okay. So in other words, he's saying, and you Gentiles, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you Gentiles once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay. Among who we now the, we Paul is speaking directly about are the believers. Now he's putting himself in that narrative. He's not a Gentile, but he's saying now we, he's saying me too, the Jews, the Gentiles, Romans, all of us, all of us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Do you see this? We say, hey, Gentiles, you did this. Hey, Gentiles, we joined you in this. So among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. And then here we go, like the rest of mankind. So the rest of mankind that Paul's talking about means that he's representing all people. So what what we're seeing right now in these first three verses is that is this, Hey, Gentiles, you, Hey, Gentiles, all of us and Gentile, everybody in the world universally is dead to rights. We're dead to rights because of our trespasses and our sin. Now I want to say a quick word about children of wrath. That is a big, big term because this is maybe, maybe one of the most disturbing and sobering verses in all of scripture. However, its meaning is clear. And the, and this is what it's revealing the default position of every single person's life, yours and mine, our default position that we are born in is that we are under wrath 
and the condemnation is death. And it's a just, it's a just diagnosis. This means that we are all sinners, every people from every tongue and every nation. We are all dead to rights. And so here's our, our first takeaway. The spiritual diagnosis for all people without Christ is spiritual death. It is our default position in life. This death supersedes all other forms of death, including physical death. So this diagnosis is bigger than your physical death. A spiritual death is far worse because even when you die, there's still eternal life awaiting you. And that's either with Christ or without him. So this is higher than physical death. Spiritual death is revealed in our lives when we remain enslaved to our sin and consumed in the passions of our flesh, rendering us children of wrath. Now, in, real, in reality, we all kind of suffer from three conditions of spiritual death, okay? And we're going to talk about that. Each and every one of us, we have all been a victim to three types of spiritual death. And I like to call them the three devastating D's of our condition. So you can remember this because this, this is important. The three devastating D's of our condition. And so let's look at the first one. We suffered the devastating condition. You did, I did, your parents did, Billy Graham did, everybody did. We suffered the devastating condition of being dead. That's revealed in verse one when it said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. This death is referring to the previous state of alienation from God, totally alienated from God. But Paul is specifying in what way we're dead. Okay, keep track with me. He's gonna specify it's in this way that you were dead and that's namely we were dead in our trespasses and we were dead in our sin so that means we're gonna have to look deeply now at what are what's this whole thing about transgressions and sins he's describing them they're, they must have something different about them so we can understand what god is trying to share with us and so we're going to begin by looking at psalms 32 5 to even see these words on the screen so here's psalms 32 and 30, uh, verse 32 verse 5 I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. This is what the psalmist says. So, so whether we know yet what each word means, what we can see is that there are three unrighteous actions that are being shown up here. We see sin, we see iniquity, we see transgressions. Anytime you see that laid out in scripture, it means that they are not the same. He is specifying three things. The same way we, we look at Hebrews chapter 12 about um, lay down every weight and lay down every sin. That's what caused you to pause. Wait, what's the difference between a weight and a sin? What is the difference between sin versus iniquity? What's iniquity that's separate from transgressions? And so let's define the two that we want to focus on today that are revealed in Ephesians, which is is transgressions and sins. And so here's a biblical definition that I believe is faithful to the uh, of sin and transgressions that I've put together for you guys. Sin describes the condition of a man or a woman who falls short or misses the mark would be a technical translation of what God would call holy and righteous. I, I, I want you to lean into this right now because it just as important is, is to have a, a good theology of who God is. You, you need to understand a good theology of sin, okay? So sin is anything that falls short of being holy and righteous in God's eyes. Sin is anything we do against God. 
or another person. Okay, sin is doing the opposite of what is right. So if you know this is what's right to do, you do what's wrong, you sin. Okay, so it, it's, it's um, according to the will of God. He decides what's right and wrong. You look to scripture. Sin is something that produces negative results. So am I producing negative results in my actions? It's sin. Sin is also failing to do or being inactive in something you know is right to do. So you can even sin by not doing something, right? You're watching something happen. You do nothing. You disengage. You sin. These can all be found biblically referenced if you want me to show you later. Now, let's look at transgressions. Transgression speaks to a kind of fluidity and a confidence in your act of sinning. To transgress is to choose to intentionally disobey. So you may not even participate in something and you still sinned, but you may not even done it consciously. This is why the blood of the lamb covers all sins, both active and passive sin. But transgression, transgressions are specifically a type of comp, confidence in it. So to transgress is to choose to intentionally disobey when you can discern the action up front is wrong. Therefore, transgression is willful trespassing and it's a heightened version of sin. Think about it this way. When Samson intentionally broke his Nazarite vow and touched the dead lion or allowed his hair to be cut, in that he was committing a transgression. He knew up front he was wrong. He engaged anyway. He transgressed. Or how about this? When you or me knowingly run a red light or a stop sign, you know up front you are wrong and you are engaging in a transgression because you are you are accepting the lie that what you're doing is okay and you are blatantly disregarding authority so what paul is saying in here when he's laying out ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins he's saying that at one point we were totally enslaved to our dead spiritual condition of living out our nature in ways that are not in alignment with god while we willfully, this is the transgression part, and eagerly and consistently chose to disobey God. That is powerful. That's why you can't go fast. He says we were so we were dead in our overall sin and in our willful leaning into the transgression of our sin. And this is a tragic reality of our spiritual condition. It's so important for you to let this sink in right now. Because here, track with me. It's to the degree that you can understand how far and how deep my sin is and your sin is, is to that same degree that you can be set up to all the more worship God for what he's done. That's the point of what Paul's laying out. He's not trying to leave you in condemnation. He's trying to point you on how to magnify God. People say, I want to glorify God more in my life. You need to interact with the depths of your sin because every time you let the weight of your sin pull the full weight on you it's to that degree that you can interact with the god of the universe and leap up with joy at how far he takes you out of that posture listen and the truth and this truth we're talking about is going to be the most important thing for your christian walk <laughs> you see the part of why we're often so discontent and super needy and never satisfied with the things in our lives is because we actually trick ourselves into believing we deserve anything. Think, slow down, folks. One of the, this is the most important thing I can ever tell you for your Christian walk to, to, to last. The most 
one of the greatest roadblocks for you stepping into all that God has for you is a miscalculation that makes you believe you deserve anything. Remember this, you and I are so dead to rights and we don't deserve anything from God. This is so important because every little inch you get from them, you got to fall on your knees. You don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. And until you rightly understand just how sick and just how dead and just how wicked and just how undeserved you really are and just how big the eternal gift and these seven blessings are in your life when you so don't deserve it until you understand that God literally doesn't owe you anything spiritually, no eternal life. He's just dead, dead, dead in your tracks right now. Or until you understand just how much you don't deserve anything materialistically, physically, provision, job, security, family, dog, nothing. You deserve nothing. You deserve death. Until you interact with how big that is, you can't turn and recognize the blessings of God all throughout your life. Because He is blessing you daily with, lung, with air in your lungs. I want you to be filled with the supremest amount of joy in your life. The type of joy that supersedes all things, but that requires for you to interact with your weakness. All right, let's keep going. We suffered from the devastating condition of being disobedient. That's part of verses two and three, when it says in which we once walked, following in the course of the world, right? Becoming sons of disobedience. So this disobedience refers to a previous state of opposition from God. Paul goes on to describe that we disobeyed God like our first parents did, Adam and Eve, right? And so instead of following God, we chose to follow Adam and Eve in these three evil forces. So we're going to look at these three evil forces specifically of disobedience. These are all laid out in scripture. Okay, here, here, here we go. So here's one of the first evil forces that we kind of fell into in disobedience. And I want you to find yourself in this. You, you, you have to find yourself here. Okay. We follow the world into disobedience. This is what Paul is sharing with us. You see, we all are controlled in some part, especially the unbeliever by the world's influences, by the values of the age, all of which are in direct opposition from God and his values. You see, those who are not walking with the Lord or are not serious about the Lord, they start to assume more and more of the attitudes and the habits and the lifestyles of the culture. That becomes more appealing to you than what Christ declares is the patterns of your life. Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy verse uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I, I, would, I would encourage you to look at that about, man, that appetite to look more like the world. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, the unsaved person, so Paul was, I mean, John was laying out, he's trying to, he's trying to teach the disciples, okay, or, and teach those who are following him. This is how you can discern the unbeliever from the saved. The unbeliever from the saved. Look at these things, right? So the unsaved person is controlled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of one's life. So, so in other words, what John is saying is, hey, hey, when you don't have Christ in the center of your life, you're gonna be pulled and you're gonna be falling into the lust of your flesh constantly. You're gonna be pulled and falling into the, the appetite of the eyes. The eyes are not the flesh. Make sure you understand that. Mm, can't get into the God. So the, the lust of the flesh is always talking mostly about things that you desire from a sexual perspective, okay? The lust of the eyes are your appetite, your desires, the things that pull you into decisions. And he's saying the, the one who's not controlled by Christ is pulled by his flesh and every appetite of the eye, okay? And so then the last one is the pride of one's lifestyle, right? 
the pride of one's lifestyle. So, the, man, I, I must have this standard of life, and that pulls me into a type of disobedience away from God. Now, here's the second evil force that's being talked about. We all follow Satan into disobedience. So first we follow the world. That's one way we're disobedient. And we also followed Adam. Adam did, Eve did, you did, I did. We followed Satan into disobedience. Here's how Paul describes Satan's work in verse 2. In Ephesians, we just read this in verse Two, remember in the first part in which you once walked following following that means what is anytime you're following in the gospels that disciple okay let's do it this way in which you once walked being discipled by the course of this world being discipled by the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now at work in the sons of disobedience you see ephesians speaks more about like spiritual principalities than any other letter of the New Testament. It does it 12 times in Ephesians. That's, that's really important. It's constantly driving attention to the power that's behind sin. And the power behind sin, folks, is Satan. Now, the word ruler and prince in the Old Testament was a term used to represent any national or kind of like a tribal leader. So Satan is being referred to as kind of the, the, the national tribal leader of sin of evil he's and he reigns and rules over the power of the air the power of the air being talked about is basically a space in between heaven and earth so what is in other words paul's saying he's the ruler of this time but notice his word is prince not king because princes still submit right that's not on accident but he's the prince of this this time we're living in in a certain way um, now it says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience now that's speaking directly to all those who are engaging in willful sin, these are the sons of disobedience, and we all were. Though, no, now, nobody is completely possessed because of Christ. Nobody is completely possessed by Satan. Okay, this is truth. Uh, he lost that kind of authority. We all, but those who are considered sons of disobedience are under his influence. Okay, under his influence. He lays out bait. Check this out. So Satan, he's, he, he's, he seeks to devour. He lays out bait. He cannot make you do anything, but he's the best baiter. So he lays out bait. And what the word of God is saying and what Paul's saying in Ephesians is the sinful man takes the bait. The sinful woman takes the bait. So when you see the things in your life and you go, you're trying to find the collision of like, is this my, am I sinning? Is this Satan coming to get me? This is how it works. Satan is the prince of this time and he is the source behind all evil. But your flesh is also rotting in evil. And so the collision of this is this way. Satan lays the bait and the sinful man and the sinful woman grab it. The sinful man and the sinful woman grab it. And you become disobedient as you follow Satan. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul mentions more about this disobedience in Ephesians 5. We'll get there in a couple of weeks about sexual immorality, greed, and foolish talk. These are all marks of the sons of disobedience. So let, let's see if we can figure out the depths of this. Okay, here we go. Have you ever experienced a time of sexual immorality in your life? Anything that is not of God. And have you ever experienced times of having any kind of greed and desire? And have you ever experienced any times of having any gossip or foolish talk? Now, we all should have a big fat yes to every one of those answers. What does that mean? We are all sons of disobedience. We are all sons of disobedience by nature. Therefore, that means we are all under the righteous condemnation of God's wrath. 
and eternal death. But there's hope around the corner. We're just not there yet. Let's keep going. We followed one more way into disobedience. We followed our sinful desires in disobedience. Just in case you want to, you got to take yourself out of the game. Satan's fault. The world's fault. Uh-uh. The third way that evil plays out is we followed our own sinful desires into disobedience. These sinful desires come from our flesh. Flesh desires or, or, or inclinations of the heart and your thoughts. Here we go. Ready? Wait, my heart's bad? My mind's bad here. No, no. It's any desire that comes out of your mind, any desire that comes out of your heart that is not submitted to God. Any desire you have and any thought you have that you do not submit to God is a sinful desire that pulls you into disobedience. Now, these sinful desires are talked about all throughout the New Testament, and they're referred to as things like anger, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, jealousy, strife, dissension, drunkenness. There's all kinds of lists. Paul then goes on to share some heavy exhortations in Romans chapter 8, 8, when he says, uh, those who are in the flesh, meaning those who are letting their flesh win out, cannot please God. You cannot be in a right relationship when the flesh is the boss and your desires are the boss. God has to be the boss. Even the prophet Jeremiah gets in the game about this. And he talks about this, about the faultiness of our heart. So here's how Jeremiah lays it out in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. So, well, what's the heart? I can't go into there, but the heart is where you, it's your chamber of your affections. It's the things that pulls you that which you most love, desire, and devoted to. He's saying that chamber is deceitful above all things. If you translate Greek of all, it means all. If you transfer it in Hebrew, it means all. Do you know what all... Slower. The heart, your desires, your affections are deceitful. Do you know what deceitful means? It means not true, not trustworthy, cannot be followed. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts don't think right. They don't move right. They don't desire right. It's sick. Jeremiah says, who can understand it? You know, that's not a real question. He's being rhetorical. He's saying God can. <laughs> Let me do it again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You can't understand it. Therefore, you need God to discern it. So overall, this is what many, and I'm, and I'm one of them, start to talk about like total depravity. Christian terms, right? Total depravity. And that just all that really means is this an aspect of saying that in every category of your being, we are sick and diseased. We're in total depra We're just in total depravity. Our condition is bad. So these are the three evil forces that pull us into disobedience. We followed the world. We followed Satan. We followed our own sinful desires. And we all find ourselves here. Now, here's the last devastating D. We suffered the condition of being doomed. Okay, this is talking about still walking faithfully through verses two and three. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, verse two and three. Being doomed refers to our previous state of eternal separation from God. That's the doomed, okay? Eternal separation, that means doomed, that's bad. Uh, um, our spiritual status is tragic, it's hopeless without Christ. We are all under the judgment of God, we've talked about that. Um, and he is not gonna sweep any of our crap under the rug. This is also not gonna happen. He's not gonna sweep any of it under the rug. It has to be rightly dealt with. Now, many people, in the, uh, many people like to think of the Old Testament as like the God of anger and wrath. 
And the New Testament is like Mr. Rogers, Disneyland, you know, like Nickelodeon. He's so nice, right? Um, not only is that dead wrong, it's a dangerous mindset to hold. In fact, we're going to, we're going to look at the words from, um, from Hebrews, um, down on your screen that should humble us all. And when it says this, and I believe to be Paul, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's a new Testament scripture showing you that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So instead, I want us to think wisely about how God represents himself in the New Testament and think of him as the God who is ushering us into a t time and a period of patience. Everybody say, God, God is, now is now in a, in a period of time, period of, time of patience. So we're experiencing this period of patience in the grace of the Lord. His wrath hasn't changed. His justice hasn't changed. But we're in this period of this in-between patient point. And that is good news, folks. Everybody in the Old Testament didn't get to experience that. But we get to live literally in the period of patience. What are we going to do with that? Because so often, we, because we live... See, it, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the people interacted differently with God because they weren't living in the period of patience. So there was direct results. You do these things, you were dying. You do these things, you were having sickness. It was very boom, boom. The law was made the same way. Boom, boom. So, But now, when we live in this period of patience, we think God's not really that angry. Because I, I go, watch my pornography. And then when I'm done, nothing happens. Or, or how about, I got to sit down. Or how about, oh, I did this thing wrong. And then I get a promotion the next day. God must be happy. Or, or I'm being unfaithful in this thing. But then I get this new uh, fancy present. I guess it's not, I guess I'm off the hook. Wait a minute. God would stop me if I'm sinning. God would stop. Hold on. You, you, you're not understanding that you're living in the period of patience. And it's the scariest time to live in. It's awesome because we get all these radical opportunities. It's scary because literally you have this scale. You have this tank. And it is being chipped away when you are not walking with the God of the universe. And there's an end to this tank. And at the end of that tank is called you are seared. And so as you walk in this way, thinking that nothing's happening as Satan chops you down in the period of patience because you don't see God disciplining you, you walk into the dangerous game of walking away from your eternity. So we need to think wisely about living in a period of patience. Therefore, recognize this. We are living literally in the doorway of God's mercy and grace, and it's wide open. And that's incredible news. Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that in the depths of our depravity, in order that we would also understand the depths of God's mercy, both, you got to get the tension, totally depraved, totally loved by God, totally worthy of death, totally offered life. That is how you worship. So Paul leans in after he lays out all these, so he's, he's diagnosed us. We're so dead to rights. We're wicked. We're all these bad things. And then he leans in with two of the most gigantic, big, beautiful, people-saving, God-exalting words in the whole Bible. Two words, but God. Everybody say, but God. but God. Those are two of the most powerful verses when put together that you will ever see in scripture. So now we're going to jump into that second segment, verses uh, 4 through 10, to look at this but God narrative. 
This is now going to be our spiritual prescription. This is the medicine or the antidote to all things in this devastating condition of, of death and disobedience and doomed and the sinful desires from Satan in the world. This is where we get to see it all come, come out. Therefore, we're going to pray again right now. Literally, we're going to pray right now because I don't really want to play church. I don't care if there's 500 people or five people. I don't want to play church. I want to invite God into everything we're doing. Now, remember, we said that we're here to have an encounter in the book of Ephesians like we've never had before. And that requires us to experience Jesus like we never have before, which means we need to see the thoughts of God in Scripture like we've never seen before. And I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit like I've never had before on this morning. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. I don't want us to miss this, but God, this is, this is the whole hope of our Christian faith. Father, in your name, we ask that as we continue forth in this sermon right now, that we would be totally set apart for you. That, Holy Spirit, you would have complete access to our minds and our hearts, that we would do our part of softening our hearts and changing our minds, therefore allowing you then to come in and do the transforming work of our hearts and our minds. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are able to do all these things. And I do pray right now that you help guide me as a pastor and the facilitator of the word that continues forward right now. I ask that you help me to keep preaching out of your power and definitely not my own. Lord, I don't have any today, God. And that, Lord, it would be your glory and no one else's today. That's what I want. And that your joy would ooze out of us today. So, Father, would you fill this house with joyful truth right now? It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. So I want you to think deeply with me about the, this beautiful remedy, this beautiful spiritual condition. And it starts in verse 4 with this but God. Let's look at that. Let's look at that now. But God, man, you are dead. You're so dead to rights. You're, you're, you're dead in your transgressions. You're dead in your sin. You're, you're not worthy of anything. You do everything wrong. You can't please God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin and willful sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Hmm. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so if, if, if you can see, we were stuck, stalled, and stagnant, but God. We were considered filthy and dirty rags, but God. We were doomed to stay in total enslavement to our sins, but God. We were robbed of the ability to have joy and satisfaction, but God. We were left to be insecure and filled with fear all of our days, but God, we were left to be in our shame and our misery, but God, God's grace and mercy is played out through our salvation. And that stands in a beautiful contrast 
to our condemnation. In fact, you can't understand God's grace without accepting your condition. So who are we? We are a people, despite our shame, sickness, sin, unworthiness, that are blessed with the but God anthem of Scripture that faithfully expresses our redeemed status before God. Our joy is produced by the consistent remembrance of our hopelessness without Christ and our incredible security found in Him. Our incredible security found in Christ. Now, then in verse 4, it talks about God showing us this great love, right? It says, in His great love, it says in Ephesians 2 verse 4. What is that great love? Well, that great love is that He loved us even when we were dead. Okay, so when you read this again, he loved us even though we were dead. It means that God loved you and me. He chose you and me when we were following the world, Satan, and our own sinful desires. Even when our attitudes, habits, and lifestyles don't look like Christ, he loved us. It means that uh, God loved us so much that despite our continued disobedience, He's offered a grace and mercy to redeem that. Now, in verse 5, it, it introduces this concept of grace into the equation. Okay, grace. Did you know that, um, again, grace is mentioned 12 times? 12 times in Ephesians. That means it's important for all of eternity. We will be recipients of God's amazing grace. Those who are believers because of his love. And that is good news. Now, when it picks back up in verse 5 with the attentional focus on being made alive together in Christ. What does it mean? to be made alive together in Christ. This is what it's saying. Christianity is not about being a good person. It's not about starting new religious routines. It's not about doing all these things. It's about becoming a whole new person in Christ, being made alive in Christ. It's about a whole new thing. So we're gonna have story time for a second. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it. And this is something you've heard before from the gospels, a little story time to kind of illustrate this whole um, Jesus leaning in in this moment with someone. Um, and making it clear that it ain't about your thought life. It's not about just some rules or, or a title. It's about being radically transformed, a new life. One time, a very religious man named Nicodemus came to ask Jesus some spiritual questions. This is me kind of making my own little children's story. Okay. So one time, a very religious man named Nicodemus came to ask Jesus some spiritual questions. He had a lot of religious knowledge, but he had not yet been made alive in Christ. So Jesus told him, I assure you, unless you're born again or, or made a life and me in you, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. This is the story from John chapter 3, verse 3. So Nicodemus was asking all these questions. And another thing that Jesus said at that time, he goes, do you not know? Do you not know these things? Are you not made alive? And so the whole point we understand is that Christian life is not about just what we're doing. It's not just about going to church. It's literally about being transformed from the inside out. And this is why this is so important. Because there are so many people that are living their relationships with Christ, but they're not being transformed from the inside out. So they're exhausting themselves in rituals of church, participation in church, serving in church, all the external factors, no movement from within. And that is a difficult spot to be in. And this is what Paul's talking about. So what can we learn from this story passage? Two things. That no one is beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace. In other words, you have not gone too far in your sin that God can make you alive. Because Paul just laid this out. All of us are children of wrath, but God, 
But God, in his great love, gave an amazing grace, and that's for you and for me. But it also means this. There is no one beyond the need for God's regenerating, and that regenerating grace. And what I'm saying there is you are not so good, so wise, so special, so holy that you don't need it. No one's beyond him. No one's without, without need for him. Amen? Amen? Now, in verses 6 and 7, it, talks, it takes to the next level saying, we've been raised up with him, and then we're seated with him. Good night. I mean, that is gloriously good news. We, we, we are raised up with Christ. We are sitting next to him. Now, in the Greek translation, I want you to know that Paul is using a compound word. Um, the letters are S, Y, and N. To that's describing Christ being raised up. Now, this is, only, this is why I'm, I'm making this a point right now. So, S, Y, N is the prefix of that Greek word. And it also happens to be the same prefix for our word of synergized and synced. Okay? Synergized and synced. In other words, the verse is saying that we are not only raised up with Christ... We have literally been synchronized with him in every possible way. Think deeply with me. When you sync your phone to the computer, all the information from the computer is synchronized into your phone. All right. This is, this is, this is the, the original translation. So what it's saying is we were synergized and we were um, synchronized so that all that Christ has has literally been transported into us, the proverbial phone. Colossians 2.2 makes this clear, and Paul says this, You were also raised with him, therefore you seek what's above. So in some mysterious way, the Bible is telling us that when, G when Jesus Christ rose, literally we rose with him. We rose with him in that moment. That is good news. Now, we can't take a long time to talk about the whole seat with Christ thing, but one aspect that I do want you to walk away with, it means this, you have the power and the authority. That's what the seat means. You have the power and the authority to start marching over your sin of disobedience, your, the sin of being doomed, and the sin of death, because you sit with Christ. So who are we? We are a people called to step confidently into the reality that God loved us even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. But because of his amazing grace, we have been made alive in Christ, forever synchronized with our Savior. Because of this, we literally rose from death to life alongside Christ. Therefore, we are free. Therefore, we are free. Okay, so let's begin to start landing the plane um, for our sermon by focusing just on verses 8 through 10 now. And here, and, here, and here they are. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Hmm. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good. Those are the, the key points I want to talk about. Okay, so Paul says that grace comes through faith. We're getting deep. This is going to have some, a lot of theology here. Grace comes through faith. And the hum, so now the human response to faith is called belief. That's how we respond to faith, with our belief. You see, think of it like this. Faith is the instrument by which we lay a hold of Christ. So think of faith as like an instrument. It's how we lay a hold of Christ. But faith is not a work. It is a gift. That's what he just said in the text. Look at it in your Bible, verse, the verse 8 and 9. It is a gift. Do you see that in verse 8? Therefore, faith is a gift, making salvation a gift. Because you got to get this. We've been saved by grace, not by faith. Remember, you know, uh, we're saved by our faith. Excuse me. We've been saved by grace, 
this is why the English, this is why you got to study. By grace means that it's by grace alone. Through is a portal. We're going to talk about this because we got a lot of people walking around talking about you're saved by faith. No, you're saved by grace through faith. And if you get the order wrong, you're going to be in a dangerous game for the rest of your life trying to get your faith up. If I believed more, if I believed more, if I believed more, if I felt more, if I felt more wrong, lost, lost boy, lost woman is what is your diagnosis if you put faith before grace. It's by grace you're saved, period. And then that activates through faith. <clears throat> and what is this a reminder of in the beginning of Ephesians? God does the work. God does the work. So that's why Paul goes on to say the reason why it is a gift from God is so that no man can boast. That's what he just says in verse 9 and 10, right? It is about exalting Christ and making much of him, not your own faith. You don't have enough faith. So here's a powerful analogy and imagery I want us to walk away with as we get ready to wrap up. I want you to think about the con this whole concept of being saved by grace through faith like water flowing through a water hose. What's the most important part? The water or the hose? The water is what we're after. To water our grass. To wash our car. The water is the most important part. But it is being communicated through the hose. The water is somewhere beneath the ground. And it's what's important. And we need it to wash the car, to have our kids play on the slip and, slip and slide. But the hose is how the water is communicated through. You can't detach one from the other. We need them both. But make no mistake about it. The source is the water. And everything the hose has been created to be is to serve the water. All of faith is not the point. It's to serve the grace of God. This is, this is, this is really important. It's really deep. Hey, the hose does not quench your thirst. And the hose cannot wash your car. The water can. Okay, are you ready? The hose is responsible for bringing the water to a place that you can benefit from it in. Listen to what I'm saying, because this, this is your whole faith walk right here. The hose is responsible for moving the water into a place that you can benefit. It's not benefiting you eight feet under the ground, but the hose is taking it into a place that you can benefit. The grace of God will change your life. The grace of God is what transforms you. The grace of God is where eternity is found. But it's through faith that you get access to that grace in a way that it can benefit you. And it doesn't seem far off. Therefore, it is by grace that you've been emboldened and empowered to have faith. So here's your final takeaway. Without the power of grace to believe, we never did, nor can believe. I'm going to go so slow without the power of grace to believe or without the power of grace to have faith. We never did have faith, but with the power of grace, the act of faith is not our own. God never believes for us. He neither does he repent for us. He doesn't do it for us, but it's by grace enabled in our spirits that we now can believe and repent. God's grace lets you repent. When you don't have a repentant heart and there's nothing in you, it's because God hasn't given you the grace for it. That means he's leaving you in your sin. He hasn't broken your heart. God breaks hearts. God breaks men and women so that they have a desire for him. 
This speaks to the importance of prayer. Because prayer is our instrument to call upon God's grace to activate that type of faith. Now, we should all want to call upon that type of prayer every day in our lives, both when it's convenient and when it's incredibly difficult to pray to the God of the universe. When we are at the top of our mountains, we need to be able to activate the instrument of prayer to invite God into it. And listen to me, when you're in the lowest valleys of your despair, you need to activate that instrument of prayer to ask upon God's grace to activate a type of faith that causes you to not only do big things and risk big things, but to do hard things. May all of us remember every day of our life that God in heaven is always there. All we have to do is lean in to our Heavenly Father, ask upon the grace and the mercy of God in our life.